everyone, Pacific here with another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Not too much to talk about this week, but a reminder as always, if you love the show and you love what we do, tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to get our show into the ears of new listeners. Second, we'll be off next week, but we'll be back the week after that with more terrifying true tales. And without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. When you think of the late filmmaker George A. Romero, it's likely that only one fictional monster comes to mind. Zombies. Through a seminal Living Dead series starting with Night of the Living Dead in 1968, Romero reshaped the way we look at these flesh-eating revenants. But his zombie movies weren't the only time he dabbled with the undead. After becoming a huge commercial and critical success on May 10, 1977, Romero released a strange, disturbing, and oddly artistic movie called Martin. It was the story of a disturbed young man with a single driving obsession, vampirism. Martin wholeheartedly believes that he's a vampire and must drink the blood of his beautiful female victims to survive. But Martin isn't really a creature of the night, so he needs to use syringes and razor blades to get his fill of the red stuff. It's one of Romero's more obscure works, an unsettling, slow-burn character study that he considered to be his best film. The tagline reads, he could be the boy next door. And in one of life's most disturbing coincidences, when the movie came out, someone much like Martin was getting ready to do something horrific. Seven months after Martin was released, a young and very unwell man named Richard Trenton Chase was about to let his lifelong bloodlust take control. This is the true story of the Vampire of Sacramento. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. Before we get any further into the episode, I want to start this one with a warning. We've covered some unsettling subject matter on this show before, but nothing quite as disturbing as Richard Chase and his crimes. If you're at all squeamish, I recommend proceeding with extreme caution because this is going to get seriously intense. Richard Trenton Chase was born in Sacramento, California on May 23, 1950, to a strict authoritarian father and a mother who couldn't care less. Young Richard was never a normal kid. He was quiet and depressive, an issue further exasperated by his father's alcoholism and physical abusive tendencies. Richard couldn't connect with other children. His socially awkward mannerisms made others uncomfortable even then. The fact that his abusive home life led him to developing other embarrassing tendencies, like frequent bedwetting, only served to further isolate him. Richard was developing frightening tendencies before he was even ten years old. An unstoppable rage was welling up inside him. And because he couldn't express himself to others socially, he started finding more destructive outlets for his feelings. Young Richard would steal local pets and even wild animals and torture them to death for his own amusement. This was also when he first experimented with what would soon become a lifelong obsession, drinking blood. When he wasn't making the local pets disappear, though, he was causing other kinds of destruction— Richard was a budding arsonist and enjoyed setting fire to other people's property, taking delight in watching them burn. Anyone who has a background in criminal psychology is probably feeling nervous right now, because bedwetting, animal cruelty, and arson are the three pillars of the MacDonald triad. This was a theory created by the psychiatrist J.M. MacDonald, suggesting that these three traits are common predictors for later, more serious antisocial offenses. And in the case of Richard Chase, this would prove to be tragically correct. 
As Richard grew up, more local pets mysteriously disappeared or turned up horribly mutilated, and his mental state started to get worse. He had a few unsuccessful relationships in high school, which fell apart due to his inability to perform sexually. Psychiatrists who saw him at the time determined this was probably a result of Richard's variety of psychological complexes and repressed rage. In hindsight, much like Martin, it was likely that Richard's inability to get invested in a normal relationship came as a result of his personal interests lying far outside the norm. Richard suffered from increasingly vivid delusions as he got older. While, of course, mental illness doesn't turn people into violent killers, the nature of Richard's vampiric delusions gave his already violent tendencies a clear direction. In order to keep the symptoms of his sickness at bay, Richard made the terrible decision of self-medicating with alcohol and drugs, which actually only exasperated the issues. It also made the problems in his home life even worse, and he started getting into violent arguments with his parents. It was around this time that Richard started developing a serious case of hypochondria, anxiously believing that he had a variety of bizarre medical issues, such as thinking his stomach was twisted in the wrong direction, believing his pulmonary artery had been stolen, and even that his heart was shrinking. Richard developed a rare condition known as the Cotard delusion, which causes a person to believe that they're dead, dying, or missing organs. In his own mind, he was already one of the undead. He also came to believe that the cranial bones that made up the top of his skull were moving, so he shaved his head in order to keep an eye on them. It was also around this time that he started to believe he needed vitamin C from oranges to survive. But rather than eating the oranges, he simply squished them against his forehead, thinking that the vitamin C would diffuse directly into his brain. At age 20, Richard left home to live in an apartment with a few friends, because he believed that his mother was poisoning him. But this cohabitation situation didn't last for long. Would it surprise you to learn that Richard Chase was a terrible roommate? His roommates would frequently complain that he was constantly blitzed on some combination of alcohol, marijuana, and LSD, making him rowdy and difficult to talk to. He also kept incredibly poor personal hygiene, leading to an extremely pungent stench lingering around him. On top of all that, he had a nasty habit of walking around the apartment in the nude, even when the others had guests over. It seemed that even when he wasn't killing people or animals to drink their blood, he was a profoundly unpleasant person to be around. His roommates ordered Richard to move out and leave. He refused, but he was such a noxious presence that they decided they'd rather move out and leave Richard with the apartment than continue living with him. Richard was fine with this arrangement, because he was about to turn the apartment into his own little carnival of nightmares. Richard was still hung up on the idea that his heart was shrinking in his chest, and believed that the only way to keep his heart from shrinking away into nothingness was by ingesting blood. Richard returned to an old childhood favorite, capturing and cutting apart animals, typically local pets. Sometimes he would drink their blood and eat their organs raw. Other times he took the blood and organs and mixed them with Coca-Cola and his blender to create blood and awful smoothies. In Richard's delusions, this helped ward off the heart-shrinking effects for a time, but then things started to get worse. Even with all the sanguinarian smoothies he could make, he still felt like his heart was shrinking. In order to keep himself from becoming fully heartless, he started performing experiments on his own body. In 1975, Richard was admitted to a hospital emergency room with serious blood poisoning. When they investigated why he'd gotten blood poisoning, they found out that he'd injected the blood from a rabbit he killed right into his veins. This led to doctors discovering Richard's long history of blood fixation and animal abuse, and, as a result, he was committed to a psychiatric institution to be treated for his various disorders. Sadly, his time in the institution didn't really help him. 
He even briefly escaped and returned to his long-suffering mother and was then transferred to a higher security institution for the remainder of his study and treatment. Workers of the facility nicknamed Richard Dracula because of his obsession with blood, and he frequently shared his bizarre fantasies about killing and drinking the blood of rabbits with nurses. In a few instances, he was found with blood around his mouth and claimed he got it from cutting himself while shaving. In actuality, he'd grabbed some birds from next to his cell's window, snapped their necks, and drank their blood like a real-life Renfield. He didn't want his heart shrinking in here, after all. Richard was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, accounting for his delusions, and given several rounds of therapy and psychiatric medication that seemed to lead to notable improvements in his mental state. He was deemed no longer a threat to society and remanded into his mother's care. Who knows what would have happened if Richard remained on his proper course of antipsychotic medication. But that isn't the world we live in. Richard's mother didn't approve of the medication he was taking, and so gradually weaned him off of the pills that were keeping him stable. It didn't take long after that for Richard to return to his old ways. Not wanting her weird adult son to stay at home, Richard's mother bought him another apartment where he lived with a few more roommates until he creeped them out and they left too. The year was 1976, and Richard was alone again. But this time, left to his own devices, things were going to get so much worse. He continued to capture and devour animals, including eating the pets of his neighbors. In one extremely disturbing incident, he anonymously called his neighbor on their home telephone and told them, in detail, that he'd eaten their pet. It was around this time that Richard developed a new obsessive delusion which he seemed to collect like Pokemon. He began to fixate on the ideas of Nazis and UFOs to the extent that he believed people in the Nazi UFO conspiracy were out to assassinate him and keep him quiet. They did this, in Richard's own mind, by placing a poisonous compound beneath his soap dish. This compound would cause Richard's blood to turn into powder and kill him. In order to prevent this from happening, he believed, yep, you guessed it, that he needed to ingest blood. He had a real one-track mind for this kind of thing. The doctors and nurses back at the psychiatric facility told Richard that it would be beneficial for him to find himself some new hobbies. Sadly, one of the hobbies that Richard decided to take up was getting really into guns. He bought several rifles and handguns, and any time he didn't spend torturing animals for their blood, he spent obsessively practicing with his various guns. Over time, he became quite the marksman, a skill that would come in handy for him later when his violence escalated. Speaking of escalating violence, one of Richard's other new hobbies was a burgeoning obsession with serial killers. He took particular interest in a pair of uncaught serial killers known as the Hillside Stranglers, though at the time there was only believed to be a single strangler. He became fascinated by the crimes of the Strangler, believing that he was also a victim of the Nazi UFO conspiracy that was forcing him to kill, leading him to feel a certain kinship with the Strangler. Around this time, he fully gave up on personal hygiene and self-care. He didn't bathe, wash his hair, shave, or even brush his teeth, leading him to look like an unkept mess of a man who smelled terrible. He also gave up on eating anything that wasn't blood or dead animals, causing him to lose weight and take on a skeletal appearance. He was a dirty, violent, emaciated man, heavily armed and hungry only for blood. Early in 1977, Richard approached his mother's front door with a dead cat. When she opened the front door, he began eating the cat and drinking its blood while screaming loudly. Richard's mother, indifferent as ever, simply ignored him and went back inside. He left bloody and embarrassed shortly after. 
In August, Richard decided to hop into his Ford Ranchero and take a trip to Pyramid Lake, Nevada for some recreational activity. Police then discovered his car, abandoned, in a sand drift with some insanely suspicious items left behind inside. A pair of rifles, a pair of clothes, and of course, some buckets filled with blood and a cow's liver. The officers who found the vehicle were incredibly concerned about whoever was driving it and they managed to track the driver, Richard Chase, who was naked, covered in blood, and screaming loudly nearby. They questioned him, naturally pretty curious about how he'd ended up in the desert soaked head to toe in blood. He claimed that the blood was his own and had leaked out of his flesh. The blood was later determined to be cow's blood and he was released without being charged. December rolled around, and despite all his maniacal recent pursuits, Richard was starting to feel lonely again. Even shooting guns and eating animals all day can get boring if you're doing it alone. So he approached his estranged mother and asked if he could drop in and stay with them over Christmas. Considering the state he was in and the last time she saw him he was screaming into the guts of a dead cat, she refused to let him crash at their place. This infuriated Richard making him feel even more isolated, alone, and rejected than before. On December 27, 1977, he grabbed one of his favorite 22 caliber pistols and went for a walk around his neighborhood in Sacramento, ready to do something terrible. He picked a house at random and fired through the window, narrowly missing the people inside. The spent slug was later found in the kitchen. While, thankfully, nobody was hurt in this instance, it changed everything for Richard. He'd crossed a threshold. This bloodthirsty man was ready to turn his aggression from animals to humans. A few days later, he'd try again. And this time, Richard wouldn't miss. Up next, we get into the terrifying vampiric murder spree of Richard Chase and the manhunt that eventually captured him. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. Richard Trenton Chase was an incredibly dangerous man. After spending his childhood, adolescence, and early 20s becoming increasingly unstable and violent, he was about to reach a tipping point that unleashed horrific terror on the people of Sacramento, and anyone else who heard the stories in the decades since. You may think, after hearing about his extensive history of drinking blood and killing animals, how could he possibly get any worse? But becoming even more nightmarish over the course of his short life was the only thing that Richard Chase ever truly excelled at. A few days after the scary near-miss on December 29, 1977, people in East Sacramento were a little on edge. That's why, when Mrs. Griffin wanted to go out and get groceries, her husband, 51-year-old engineer Ambrose Griffin, decided to head to the grocery store with her, just to be safe. Their two sons remained at home but were told to remain vigilant. You never know who's out on the prowl these days. After the shopping was done, the Griffins returned home. Ambrose told his wife to go take a load off inside. He'd happily make the last few trips to and from the car to get the groceries back inside. He just didn't feel comfortable having her out here considering what had happened. However, on the last trip out to the car, Ambrose noticed another car approaching. A Ford Ranchero slowly trundling down the street. 
the man behind the wheel looked dirty and gaunt with wild, frantic eyes. Before Ambrose could even think to move, the ranchero was already passing him. The driver leaned out of the window, carrying a familiar 22 caliber pistol, and fired twice. One of the shots missed, and the other hit Ambrose Griffin square in the chest. Ambrose collapsed to the ground as his assassin, Richard Chase, drove away. This was Richard's first ever human murder. When police later ran ballistics on the bullet that had killed Ambrose Griffin, they found that it was fired by the exact same gun that shot through the woman's window a mere two days earlier. An active killer was now on the loose. In January 1978, Richard would strike again. Chase never premeditated his murders. He was simply pulled along by his own violent whims, acting as they struck. While the murder of Ambrose Griffin is widely deemed to be a practice murder for his later killings, Richard still very much believed that the poison from the Nazi UFO conspiracy was turning his blood into powder. Animal blood was tiding him over, but he was jonesing for something more. It would only be a matter of time until Richard tasted human blood. January 11th, Richard hassled a woman who lived in his neighborhood when he saw her smoking. He still regularly indulged in excessive amounts of alcohol and drugs, and he wanted one of her cigarettes. When she refused to give him one, he grabbed her and physically restrained her, only letting her go when she finally surrendered the entire pack. Two weeks after that, Richard was feeling the thirst for blood once more and started hunting for his next victim. He wandered from home to home in the neighborhood, just trying the handles on the front doors. He would later tell interviewers after he was caught that he saw a locked door as a sign that he was not welcome, but a door that was left unlocked was essentially an invitation inside. An eerie parallel to real vampire mythology which commonly states that a vampire cannot enter a home uninvited. While on the prowl, he encountered an old high school friend, Nancy Holden, who was unsettled by the freakish man that Richard had become. He asked her for a ride, but Nancy, sensing the murderous vibes coming off of Richard, made her excuses and left. Trusting her gut in this case probably saved her from a horrific death. The hunt continued. Richard broke into the home of a family who lived down the street, where he stole several items before urinating and defecating on the clothes and bed of the couple's infant son. This is a compulsive behavior referred to by criminal psychologists as a fetish burglary. And much like the McDonald triad, it's a behavior often exhibited by budding serial killers. The family returned and the husband tried to attack Richard, but Richard was able to escape. Nobody was harmed in this particular break-in, but the occupant of the next house wouldn't be so lucky. Richard approached the home of Teresa and David Wallen, another local couple. David was out at work and Teresa had briefly left the home to take out the garbage. In doing this, she'd left the front door of her home unlocked and didn't notice a tall, lithe figure sliding into her home. She sighed after setting down the garbage bags, having no idea what was waiting for her. She returned home thinking about how many errands she had to run before the day's end. At least David would be home soon to lend her a hand. She opened the door and came face to face with the monster waiting for her. Richard Chase, with his dirty skin and wild eyes, was standing before her, staring at her, looking almost hungry. Of course, Teresa screamed, as any of us would. That's when Richard raised his infamous 22 caliber pistol, the same he used to murder Ambrose Griffin a few weeks earlier. Teresa raised a hand, hoping in vain to defend herself. Richard fired, the first shot blowing a defensive wound through her hand. As she collapsed to the ground holding her bleeding hand, Richard shot her twice in the head, killing her there and then. But while Teresa was dead, Richard was only just getting started. 
He dragged her body into the bedroom where he engaged in acts of extensive post-mortem mutilation with a butcher knife, as well as engaging in necrophilia. When that was done, he used the knife to begin his harvest. He collected several of Teresa's major organs while also draining her blood into a bucket. He then took this bucket of blood into the bathroom and literally bathed in it, like Countess Bathory, another famous human vampire, did hundreds of years before. After mutilating Teresa's body further, he collected some of her blood in a yogurt pot to drink. In one final act of post-mortem humiliation, Richard collected dog feces from the yard and forced it into the mouth of Teresa's corpse before fleeing the scene. The sheer brutality of the murder shocked Sacramento as well as the clear evidence that the killer had, among other things, eaten Teresa's organs and drank her blood. It created even more of a stir when it came to light that Teresa had been three months pregnant when she was killed and mutilated. This was when her mysterious assailant earned his two most infamous monikers, the Dracula Killer and the Vampire of Sacramento. It does beg the question why, at this point, none of the many people who knew Richard, including his parents, his former roommates, and the people who attended to him in the psychiatric facility, never spoke up. Richard's deranged obsession with blood and blood drinking was well known among pretty much everyone who knew him, up to the point that his former carers literally nicknamed him Dracula. Ditto for the police officers in Nevada who'd found him covered in blood and let him go. The question remains that, if someone had spoken up about Richard's many, many, many warning signs earlier, further deaths may have been prevented. It's another extremely frustrating failure of the system supposedly put into place to protect people from situations exactly like this. Before committing his final infamous act of mass murder, Richard decided to whet his appetite by buying a pair of puppies from a pet store, drinking their blood and leaving their bodies in his neighbor's yard. Four days later, on January 27, 1978, he entered the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Miroth, thirsty for blood. But Evelyn wasn't alone in her house. Her six-year-old Jason was in her house as well as her 22-month-old nephew, David. Her adult neighbor, Dan Meredith, had also come over to check on the kids. While Dan kept an eye on Jason and David, Evelyn decided to treat herself to a quick bath. That's when Richard made his move, wielding the same 22 caliber pistol that he'd used on both of his previous murders. Dan saw him enter and tried to intercept him, wanting to protect the children. Richard shot him in the head at point-blank range, killing him instantly. He turned Dan's body over and stole the wallet and keys from his pocket. Jason, upon hearing the gunshots, had fled to his mother's bedroom. David, who was still pretty much an infant, was unable to flee as Richard shot him dead, then followed Jason into the bedroom and shot him twice, killing him. He then entered the bathroom where he fatally shot Evelyn in the head before horrifically mutilating her body and drinking more of her blood. He also brought the body of young David into the bathroom, cracked open his skull, and ate some of his brains. Richard operated on a level of evil and depravity that is difficult for normal people to even conceive. A six-year-old girl who had a play date arranged with the recently murdered Jason knocked on the front door. This spooked Richard, who fled from the house, stealing Dan's car and driving away. The little girl immediately alerted an adult who stormed into Evelyn's home and called the police after seeing the horrific remains. During the investigation, they found that Richard had made one fatal mistake with this crime scene— He'd left reliable hand and boot prints in the blood of his victims. He also stole David's body to feed on his blood and organs before dumping the body behind a church several weeks later. This was the last series of murders that Richard Chase, the dreaded vampire of Sacramento, ever committed. Now the ball was in the court of his pursuers. It was time to bring this bloodsucker's reign of terror to an end, once and for all. 
Richard Chase was a highly dangerous and unstable individual who had, up to this point, taken six lives with no discernible pattern between his victims. However, one saving grace was the fact that, due to the frenzied, bloodthirsty nature of his violence, he did a terrible job at covering his tracks, often leaving police with a smorgasbord of evidence to look into. Given the severity of the crimes and the understandable panic it caused around Sacramento, the FBI dispatched two of its top agents in the field of criminal profiling, a relatively inexact method that was extremely popular in the 70s and 80s, and forms the basis for the popular TV show Mindhunter. These two agents were Robert K. Ressler and Russ Vorbegel. They compiled a profile of the so-called Dracula killer that was eerily similar to Richard Chase, describing the killer as a tall, malnourished, physically unclean loner. But in the end, it wasn't the Sacramento police nor the pair of hotshot FBI agents who actually caught Richard. It was Nancy Holden, Richard's old school friend who he'd had one uncomfortable interaction with that called into a tip line and told them to look into Richard Chase. Nancy's courage, first in refusing to give Richard a ride, then in being the only person who'd spotted the signs and said something, is the reason the vampire of Sacramento was finally dragged, kicking and screaming into the daylight. When the police ran a background check on Richard, they found he bought a twenty-two caliber semi-automatic pistol, which had been the murder weapon in all the vampire killings. They staked out his apartment and arrested him when he left wearing blood-stained clothes. He also had Dan Meredith's wallet and the blood-stained murder weapon on his person. Nobody had ever been caught more red-handed. The inside of his apartment, searched by Ressler and Vorpigel, was a horror beyond imagination. Everything was covered in blood, from the walls to the ceiling to the carpet, and of course, all of Richard's knives and forks. They found the putrid blender where he'd been making blood, organ, and cola smoothies for years, as well as several body parts from his previous victims, wrapped in saran wrap or stored in Tupperware in his fridge. There were even a few collars from the pets he'd killed and eaten, as well as a number of diagrams of the human body laid on the table, along with several large blades. In the following trial in 1979, where Richard's guilt was pretty much as certain as a person's had ever been, his lawyer fell back on the insanity defense, arguing that Richard was so disconnected from reality that he couldn't be held responsible for his crimes. The judge and jury at the trial didn't buy this, claiming that though Richard was clearly an unbalanced individual, he didn't satisfy the legal definition of insanity. He was sentenced to death and would serve the rest of his life in the notorious San Quentin prison's death row. He was interviewed in prison by Agent Ressler, who had hoped to understand the motives behind his horrific crimes. Richard gave him the same spiel about how he was forced to be a vampiric serial killer by the Nazi UFOs and that he wished he could have a radar gun to make one of the UFOs land and act as a witness for him. As the interview came to a close, Ressler drew the obvious conclusion that Richard was a sexual sadist who was also completely separated from reality. Richard then produced two handfuls of prison macaroni from his pocket, asking Ressler to have it tested because he believed the prison was poisoning his food. Other inmates in San Quentin, even stone-cold killers and gangsters, were horrified and repulsed by the details of Richard's crimes. They wanted to kill him, but were too afraid to get close to him, so they instead tried to convince him to kill himself. Their words were apparently very compelling because Richard did just that, saving up his anti-anxiety medications for weeks and then overdosing in his cell in 1980 at age 30. The vampire of Sacramento was finally dead, and he wouldn't be rising from his coffin like his namesake. When discussing why he created Martin, George Romero said, Martin is designed to show that all those supernatural monsters that are a part of our literary tradition are, in essence, expurgations of ourselves. They are beasts we've created in order to exorcise the monster from within us. 
I tried to show in Martin that you can't just slice off this evil part of ourselves and throw it away. It's a permanent part of us, and we'd better try and understand it. And the real-life horror story of Richard Trenton Chase more than proves that the monsters lurking inside every person are much stronger in some than others. Tonight's episode was written by Henry Galley. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was the incredible Danny Sweet, and I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska, and this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit www.insidious.show.